This is Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the Retail Doctor. I'm not saying don't do new stuff and don't have shiny new objects, but it's where you put your shiny new ideas against that's really critical. It's not against anything. It's against what you're already loved for. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with your host, Bob Fibbs, the champion for a more human connection in retail for over 30 years as a retail doctor. Bob is the authority on brick-and-mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest luxury brands to independent retailers of all sizes. Today, I'm talking with Sun Yu, an expert on innovation and branding. He most recently served as the Global VP of Innovation and Officer at VF Corporation, home to over 30 global apparel companies. This is the branding guy. Welcome. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to be with the retail guy. <laughs> oh, what a good guy. I appreciate that. Well, you have a new book coming out called Friction, Adding Value by Making People Work for It. So what was the impetus for writing this? Well, a lot of it had to do with my previous book called Iconic Advantage, where we kind of just reverse engineered the strategies people use to create kind of these ideas of lasting brands, brands that stood the test of time. Brands that actually stood for something you cared about and they were able to sort of make it relevant to you, not only today or yesterday, but sort of in the future. And by the process of having that time and that longevity, they became known as the standard bearers for whatever distinction they had and thereby became iconic for that distinction. Well, in writing that book, one of the key elements in creating distinction is, or actually to reinforce the idea of distinction is having signature elements that kind of remind you about why a business, a retail store, a, you know, internet, whatever it is, is unique or different. And I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, Nike has the Air Max. And every time you see an Air Max, you see a little bubble in the sole and you kind of say, oh, yeah, that's an Air Max. And it reminds you about what's so cool about that shoe and that You know, most trainers lose 40% of their uh, support in their lifetime, but a pocket of air never loses its bounce. And so it it supports the idea that it has buoyancy and support. You know, uh, one other example would be uh, Corona. You you basically think a Corona without a lime in the neck is kind of naked, right? So you you always have to have that little lime in the neck to kind of remind you that it's the vacation beer. You could be where you are in in New York. Actually, it's probably decent weather, but let's say it was – February and it was cold and rainy and you'd be on a rooftop party and it doesn't matter. You've got a a lime in the neck of a Corona and you're sort of brought back to uh, being in Cabo over the summer. Right. And that that's what's so cool about it. Anyway, one of the ideas of signature elements is really the idea of creating signature experiences, having something that's experiential, whether we're going to talk about retail, right. That people remember you for, like if you're going to go to Ikea, you know that you're going to meander. You know that when you go in there, it's going to be this sort of zigzag process. You're going to go through every department. You and I may just want some flatware, but boy, in the process of trying to buy that flatware, we know the experiences. We're going to look at mattresses. We're going to look at sofas. We're going to look at cutlery. And, you know, we're going to have our potentially our wife and our kids with us, and they're going to they're experience different things. And we're going to, it's going to be at least a 30 minute to two hour process. And, and, and mentally, we know that. Anyway, so I was thinking about this idea of signature experiences, and the whole world is 
aimed at becoming seamless and frictionless and easy. And when I looked at great signature experiences, especially in retail, I realized, hey, you know what? These companies are doing something different. They're actually making you spend more time with them. They're making you sweat. They're making you cry. They're making you fall in love with them. They're making you go through this hero's journey sometimes and storytelling with you as part of the story. And I'm like, man, they're, they're actually taking – it's kind of taxing to be part of that. But what I realized is that great signature experiences require good friction, require these companies to actually make you work a little harder to stay engaged with them and to actually consider them. So that was the big aha moment. Like, hey, not all frictions created equal. There might be something called good friction along with all that bad friction. So that's a long way of describing how that idea of friction came about. You have so much to unpack there, dude. I want to go back to like every line you said. It was like, what about this? What about this? This is like, yeah, that whole idea of iconic brands. I want to, I will keep going about friction, but you think of iconic brands from 20 years ago. What is it, Seattle? Where has, isn't that Smith Corona has the typewriter still on the building in Seattle? You think of Sears and you think of these, they weren't known for experiences though, were they? They were probably just, what was that? Was it was it that Sears was a trusted baby boomer aspirational brand? And then once that generation moves on, it it wasn't able to stay with it. Same thing with Smith Corona. It's like, oh my gosh, they built a whole building to typewriters. But that was technology. So any thoughts about that? Yeah. So why did those uh, sort of, okay, so what were those brands known for? And why weren't they able to sort of translate that into subsequent generations and basically why the hell did they die so let, let's take sears i think Sears is a really interesting uh, case study like you know this is off the cuff i haven't done any research on it but when i think back when i was a kid at sears and then when i read back about some of the history of sears a lot of sears was about the catalog remember the catalog montgomery ward wish, was kind wish of like book. That. that's what it was wish book it was like this big book right and I even think back about that. Okay, and this is really going to date you and I, Bob. But do you remember the mu uh, movie Music Man? Of course. Yeah. Uh, well, Fargo Wagon's well, coming. Fargo Wagon is coming down the street. Remember that? And it was all about the idea that, you know, you ordered something on a catalog and then the Wells Fargo Wagon was going to bring it. And there's all the anticipation and this idea of dopamine, right? It, it really was this idea of, I mean, sure. I think eventually Sears had the big box, but they got away from the idea that, you know what, part of what Sears, when I was growing up, was all about was the idea of hopes, aspirations, dreaming, and anticipation, and and seeing something in the catalog, thinking about it, researching it, probably spending a week or two or three, you know, thinking about, do I get this one or that one? And somehow the big box, they lost that. They, they put, they translated that catalog into the big box. And honestly, over time, it became something where there was less excitement. There was less energy. And it was all about, hey, how fast can I get whatever I want? You know, my, my craftsman's blah, 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 you know. And so I think that's part of the reason. Now, how would they maintain the idea of anticipation and, and dopamine? That, that, is a, that would be an interesting case study. I don't have the exact answer off the top of my head. But I'll say this. What I loved about Sears when I was growing up was very different than what translated to Sears later, which is just big box and lots of availability and honestly not the best quality selection. 
Yeah, I've always thought Sears should have been Amazon. They had the supply chain. They had the last mile. They knew it all. They knew what we bought. They knew where we lived. I mean, you just have to think of strategically so many people just had to miss things that were right underneath them. And and that brings me back to you and your this book on friction. So there's good friction and bad friction, right? And in the book, you talk about like, well, we can walk forward. That's good friction. <laughs> so what, is, what is the difference between good and bad? And how do you... How do you know the difference? Yeah, I mean, friction, whether it's good or bad, is defined similarly. It's anything that sort of creates, uh, requires you to extend effort, consideration, time, and investment, right? Bad friction, the only difference between bad and good friction is the outcome. Bad friction is a negative outcome. Good friction is positive outcome. Let me give you an example. And this also speaks to the idea of a signature experience. One brand, I'm not going to say who yet, basically understood that their product was treasure. It was this idea that, you know what, if you're going to get to our product, it's like opening a treasure chest and the experience should be like opening a treasure chest. Contrast to what every other person was doing, let's say you and I wanted to buy, I don't know, a flash drive, right? A simple little flash drive that's basically not even the size of our, our thumb, okay? And... In order to do that, we'd have to, you know, maybe we'd go to Best Buy and we'd pick up something that was in a plastic clamshell that was the size of, I don't know, uh, you can't see this, but my notebook here, which is, you know, five by eight, right? And it would be a, a, this, this heavy plastic clamshell. You'd have to take scissors, cut it open. And even then, you'd have to use your fingers and actually put it in between the crease and try to pry open to get to this little... I don't know, the little thumb, thumbnail, right? And part of the reason they did that is because they wanted to make this thumbnail that originally was rather expensive seem more weighty, you know, like, oh, justify the idea that you're going to pay $10 for something that's the size of your finger. Well, let's, that's to me bad friction, right? Okay, the, the, the effort, the time. And, and generally, I'm going to interrupt you for one second. Don't forget those were also behind locked cabinets often. You had to <laughs> find someone with their little scrunchie of the sacred keys to see if you're worthy enough, oh, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's all bad friction. And then, oh, of course, they had their little sticker that, you know, was basically magnetic, whatever, you know, readers and all that. So, anyway. Okay, so to me, that's a lot of bad friction. Well, here's a company that said, says, look, instead of taking five minutes to open your package, which seemed kind of bad, we're going to make you spend on average 15 to 20 minutes to open and unveil your package. And you're like, what? Five minutes is already enough. I'm already stressed out. It was already painful. I, you know, it's like I'm traumatized. You want me to spend four times the amount of time to open your package? Well, by golly, yes. I mean, think about Apple, right? You think about like my I, this this last Christmas. You know, I finally succumbed to my son saying, yeah, everybody in my class has an Apple Watch. Well, not everybody, but okay, over half. That's that was fair, okay? So I, I finally got him his Apple Watch, you know. The middle schooler's right, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, so – but he takes it – he gets it home, and he's so excited about it, and he opens it up. And literally, he's in his room for like 35 minutes, you know, first – just playing around with uh, just the watch itself and the charger. And then there's this little booklet he had to read. And then in each step, he actually had to go back online and register and personalize and adjust and load apps. And I, you know, we didn't see him for over half an hour. And that was probably the most exciting part of Christmas for him was that half an hour he spent unveiling his Apple watch. And, you know, I, I do a lot of keynotes and I ask people, 
how many of you bought an Apple? And 90% of the room has raised, raises their hand. I said, how many of you have actually kept a package from Apple? 90% keep their hand up, right? And then, you know, I, I keep asking, okay, two packages, three packages. I've gone up to like 18 packages somebody's kept. And I go, what are you wow. doing? All this? I can't throw them away. It's, each one has a memory and it's a beautiful work of art. And to them, that was great friction, the unveiling of a product. So, you know, th- there's good friction and there's bad friction. That's amazing. So, you know, so many pundits now say the hallmark of great product or service is making things easy, but easy pretends that it's it's a click and buy. And I think that's where you're saying that the more you're like that, the more forgettable you become. I mean, you've worked with innovation and how do I keep somebody's attention? So, you know, what's the secret to generating this adrenaline and dopamine and more engagement in a company or a brand? And you have... Five minutes to say this, all that's in your book. (laughs) Fantastic. Great. Well, look, I mean, you nailed it. I think you're touching on this idea that everyone right now is sort of preaching the idea of becoming seamless. And and everyone's saying that is the path to get customers, making it as easy as possible. Here's the thing, and and a word that maybe you and I are in the pre-recording we're talking about, but that becomes forgettable, right? Because if something's so easy... You don't think about it. There's no consideration. And there's this old, old adage in marketing and retail, which is how you acquire your customers is how you keep them. So if you acquire a customer by being the easiest and frictionless experience, whether it be online or at the store or wherever, guess what? That's how you have to keep them. And if you think about it, all that's something that's about to happen to you is the idea that <laughs> the, the biggest risk for you is this idea that they're going to probably swap you out for somebody else that's even more seamless. It's an easy, easy – the switching cost for swapping you out is, is near zero. Now, your question about what does it take – well, we, we in the book talk about seven virtues of really good friction, okay? Friction that creates dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, and adrenaline. Um, we talk about the idea that you need to embrace a dose of really good friction. And so the first thing we talk about is engagement. What are you doing to make sure that people are spending more time with you in a way that's fun, in a way that you know actually brings out all these happy chemicals, in a way where they're actually involved in the conversation or in the storytelling? So I'll, I'll give you a quick example of, of engagement. Uh, the North Face in Korea created a store where basically – what happens is you get in the store and they wait till there's only one customer in the store. And then uh, the store staff boot, boat out of the store. They turn on a switch and literally the floor starts coming out from under you. It starts splitting in half. Dude, I've and- seen this video. I've used <laughs> it in speeches. I think it is amazing. I thought it was a pop-up. It's a, it's a real store. It's a real store. So the floor comes out from under you. And the way it comes out is it basically, if you're standing on, let's say, the far end of the store, the middle of the floor starts, you know, uh, coming apart. And then basically it pushes you towards the wall that you're near. Okay. And the wall that you're near just happens to be a climbing wall. Okay. And so you are basically like forced to grab those knobs that you see on one of those rock climbing walls. And then uh, as the floor disappears, you see underneath you is literally a 10 foot drop onto some cushiony stuff, but it's a 10 foot drop, which is kind of freaking you out. Right. And then all of a sudden, um, out of nowhere, the roof opens up or ceiling opens up and 
the most expensive North Face jacket in your size comes down and it says uh, in, a, in a screen, you have 30 seconds to grab this and it's yours. And then the timer goes off and, and basically uh, you, you see and what it forces you to do, you actually have to climb that rock wall to get to the very top so that you can actually have a chance to leap and grab and get the jacket. And, you know, not everyone does it, but it, I mean, talk about dopamine, talk about interaction, talk about gamification. So that, that is one huge way is this idea of creating engagement. Okay. Another is um, meaning. You know, when you think about the idea that um, meaning requires consideration, it requires this idea of investment, but it also requires the idea of storytelling and, and, and customization. So over in Timberland, we actually had a store in Japan where you could bring, you could either do this with new shoes or your old Timberland shoes, and you can bring them in and customize it. You can put, you know, different stickers on it. You can have it embroidered. You can have your name heat stamped on it. So, you know, and, and they often do this not only with the new ones, but oftentimes with the old ones. Because Japan, there's sort of this idea that old is new, right? And, and that created great meaning. But obviously, it required you to bring your, your shoes in and think about it and, and and have a station where you were planning out how you wanted to customize it. But it was incredible, incredible good friction. You know, I was talking to – so I'm in San Francisco. And, you know, I know you guys are, are baseball fans there out in New York, but we are too in San Francisco. And we have the Giants. And it's funny. I was visiting the Giants store, and I asked them, oh, God, you know, during the offseason, it must be pretty bad. You know, there's no one coming to the stadium, so you're probably not selling any product. They go, No. People come here on a regular basis to meet other fans and talk about the off-season moves, what's going to happen next season, to reminisce about the previous season. And for them, it's become sort of the social connection where they, they feel a sense of belonging. And retail is actually helping to facilitate the idea of belonging on, in the off-season, not just, in the, uh, just during the regular season. And, and another key uh, type of good friction is actually building rapport with somebody. I actually think one of the best ways to build rapport is obviously to have that familiarity. And, and, you know, that's what I love most about my local mom and shop pops is because they've been around for a while. And there's this sort of this sense of when I go there, I kind of know who the proprietors are and, you know, the, the better ones obviously start to get to know their clientele and there's, it's, that's irreplaceable, right? And so what if it cost me, I don't know, 10 or 20% more than if I bought it on Amazon. I don't care. For me, it's a sense of that beyond my family is my extended family. And restaurants and shops that do it right become part of the community and part of that second family. And, and, and yeah, maybe that's a, a, it requires good friction to, to, to have that type of relationship. But that's the type of relationship we crave. And that's why barbershop, you know, people sometimes just hang out there for hours, right? It's not that, oh, I need the, the fastest, you know, great clips, you know, $5 cut or 10 Now it's probably like $20, whatever. You know? But, you know, but it, it is really this idea I, I want to connect with other people. And so retail, by the way, retail in general has so many opportunities to provide good friction, right? Physical retail versus being online. And and I, I think, you know, the, the folks listening to this podcast, think about it this way. I, I, to me, um, if you're trying, if you believe in the idea of good friction, physical retail is the unlock for so many types of good friction. And, and so I just described a few of them, but uh, yeah. And then, oh, I'll, I'll give you one last example. I already told you about IKEA, right? <laughs> IKEA has a lot of good friction, right? I mean, you, you have to spend hours meandering. 
But there's also another one that helps sort of build the idea of competence. Com- competence requires good friction from the customer to provide effort and to, to become good at something. Well, retail can encourage that. We have um, a retail store here. I'm a golfer and it's called Golf Mart. And you're basically encouraged to come in there and try out all these different things. And they have all this analysis and they have people who are great fitters. And there are people that are just, let's call them golf nerds. And they can talk to ours about your specific, you know, sort of marrying your specific skill set with the equipment they have with, you know, what you're trying to accomplish. And to me, that's great friction. That's entertainment friction. That's friction that I will help build my confidence. But at the same time, it, it just makes me want to keep coming back. So again, I, I think retail is the one of the best forms of good friction out there. What a guy. Well, I always believe there is a, I'm passionate about that. So I couldn't agree more with you, but also the, you know, there's always a story around why I purchased something, which is what you're talking about with people wanting to hold on to the Apple, you know, the boxes and packages. And then there's the actual product. And so many times people forget it's not just about the product because I go online to buy, I go into a store to discover. And if you do that right, then life gets easier. So you have a popular course on LinkedIn. And in the promo, you said, the business that has the stinkiest cheese gets the business. Now, after this break, I want you to explain what you mean. All right? (laughs) As the pandemic restrictions have ended, customers are being drawn back to brick and mortar stores. And online sales, well, they're declining. What do you need to convert more lookers to buyers and help those who came in to buy just one item to take home more? Well, you train your crew how to engage a stranger and make the sale. Now that's gotten harder since the pandemic, but there's an easy solution. SalesRx, my online retail sales training program, which is in use on four continents with hundreds and thousands of learners. It's the smart way to boost conversions and add-ons. Just go to salesrx.com to learn more. Now back to our program. Before we continue, we love our loyal listeners. So if you do me a favor and give us a five-star rating after this episode, I'd appreciate it. And on to speaking with Soon Yu, developer of some of the most iconic brands in the world. You have a popular course on LinkedIn, and in the promo you said, the business that has the stinkiest cheese gets the business. What do you mean by that, my friend? Yeah, so I work with uh, especially a lot of startups, and a lot of startups think they need to be the fastest out there, right? Or they need to be the biggest in terms of scale, or they need to have the best bells and whistles in terms of technologies or features. They, 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 they need something like that in order to win their game. And I'm like, huh? You know, it's not always the biggest, the baddest, or the fastest mousetrap that gets the mice. It's the one with the stinkiest cheese. So I think your goal is to create stinky cheese. And what I mean by that is have a great story. Have something that, you know, draws people to you that, transcends idea that maybe you're the biggest or transcends idea that maybe you have the best technology. And so I think the idea is storytelling. And what you were talking about, you know, there's sort of what a few cuts of, of, of what I would call a relationship. Some of it is the what, you know, what are you getting out of it? And to me, that's a little transactional, but I think there are other elements and you were speaking about it earlier. One of them is the why the other is the how, and then the third one is the who. And so I think it's just important to talk about the why, how, and who. And you do that through storytelling, okay? And so, you know, it's just about the what, which is the end result. 
that's that's fine. And you know, you, you want to buy the flash drive, you want to buy the flash drive, great. But if you can talk about the how, the why, and the who, and especially as it relates to retail, that's such an incredible theater to talk about, you know, you know, you obviously see and interact with the who, right? And then you're able to talk about the why of the product the why of the company that the product was made by, the why of the retail environment, retail store, and the retail store owner. Uh, you're able to share that. And then the how, the process of, hey, trying on a new pair of shoes, and, and is that a good process for you? And do you feel more assured? And, you know, sure, granted, maybe the easy thing is to buy 10 different you know sizes and have them shipped to you and then just Create, let's face it, we're creating an incredible bad carbon footprint by having all these boxes shipped back and forth, truthfully, when you could actually sit down with somebody and not only have the best set from a field perspective, but learn about the product while you're getting fitted. And you might realize, based on the what I really need, this is not actually the right product. I might be, I need to be thinking about something else with this other feature. And then, you know, how does it fit in with your journey and how you're going to use a product? So, Retail provides that, you know, whereas, you know, sh shipping 10 boxes and shipping nine back doesn't. Well, I was going to ask you about, since you brought it up, my friend, let's talk about Shine, the fast forward online giant with 6,000 SKUs dropping a week and 5 billion views on TikTok. They seem to be the exact opposite of what we hear Gen Z once, which has got to be sustainable and it's got to be all of this. And where's the innovation going on here? It's like we're being told one thing, but clearly, I mean, Shine is bigger than Zara and H&M. So there's a market that's saying one thing and doing another. Is that hard to innovate with? Well, let's face it. As humans, we are oftentimes inconsistent. Um, we are conflicted. <laughs> And a lot of times we do the monkey thing where sometimes we don't want to see something. Sometimes we don't want to hear something. Sometimes we don't want to know something. Sometimes we just don't want to reconcile something. Right. And I, I think, you know, you have competing values. Uh, and and I, I think this idea of Gen Z, there is this sort of connection to instantaneous gratification. They've got, they've gotten a sort of good dose of it for the, for most of their life, you know, and even when I think about parenting, sometimes it's this option of, geez, you know, we could just make it really easy and I could provide a shortcut here to, you know, instead of watching my son stumble or fumble or mumble, especially the mumbling part. You know the mumbling part's coming when they're going to stumble and fumble. It's, sometimes the stumbling fumble is not five. It's the complaining. It's the, I don't like this. And and you you have to sit there and go, ah, oh, do I, you know, do I want to stick to my gun and, and, and guns and basically say, yes, no, you're going to have to redo that. No, and, and put up with that. But yeah, I mean, that's part of the process of learning, how do you want to say this, living your values. And I, I think what Gen Z has is the convenience of having stated values, but never having to pay for them. I know that's a pretty broad statement, but values aren't values until they cost you something, right? And I do think at some point there will be a reckoning where people realize, huh, and you can tell people to their, to you're blue in your face till they're, you know, blue in their ears, it doesn't matter until they actually live an ethical dilemma where they're faced with two conflicting options that actually potentially speak to different values that they have, right? Until they've had to struggle with that, until they've had to live with the consequences 
Okay, and part of what happens with something like China is it's kind of consequence free, at least in their in the consumer's universe, right? It's not really in their face yet. I think until people do that, they will honestly probably take take the path of least resistance. And yeah. I'm challenging that whole idea. I'm challenging the idea that you know what, you can't make it so that there aren't consequences. Part of good friction is this idea that there are consequences. And that you can't just avoid them your whole life. That at some point, as you grow as a human being, it's good to actually live both good and bad consequences. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We're seeing that in New York City, the whole conundrum of last mile delivery and all the delivery services coming up with 15-minute delivery. And you're like, who's paying for this? This is the most expensive way to deliver something to get your toothbrush. But you can do it. It's just that now they're going to open up all these dark stores that are going to fulfill it. And now you've changed the entire character of your neighborhood because you have just nobody walking the streets, which makes them less safe, which makes them more prone to, you know, things going uh, bad and not being kept up and it not looking pretty. So there's a lot to that. So we could go on, I'm sure, a long time with that. You've been generous with your time. retail, buddy. I know, I know. So I love that innovating is, you know, you said in your book that innovating where customers already know and love you and you have momentum is the key. So if you were to say, here's three things that owners of companies and CFL level execs could do right now to bring on innovation knowing that because what I hear from you is don't go for the shiny object look at what's working already is what I take from that so what would be like three things you might recommend to somebody besides reading your new book friction yes please read my new book that was my one little mini plug there (laughs) okay no to your question I think it's an important one yes I, I do talk about this idea in the first book iconic advantage that, you know, it's actually, uh, don't chase the new, innovate the old, right? You have something that people already love you for that you're known for. And assuming you're that lucky that you've been around in a long enough time and you actually have a signature element that people already know you for, then by all means, invest against that versus trying to create a uh, sort of something else you're known for. Because then, quite frankly, if you're known for too many things, you're not known for anything, okay? It's, you're, it gets confuses people. So I always say, look, I'm not saying don't do new stuff and don't have shiny new objects. That's where you put your shiny new ideas against. That's really critical. It's not against anything. It's against what you're already loved for. It's what you're already known for. Now, what I would suggest First and foremost, people may not know what they're known for. And especially in a retail environment, one of the things that you know I work with a lot of clients on is helping them create signature experiences. Some they already have and they didn't know, which is great. And others, they kind of have uh, what I call the beginning stages of. Um, and, and so here's a very practical way to kind of either develop or figure out your signatures uh, experiences. Bring in two or three customers and just sit them down, and it doesn't have to be perfect, but you can just do a quick sequential journey map for the customer for them experiencing your retail environment. You know, like, okay, when did you find out about the store? Who, you know, was a friend from a friend, blah, 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 blah. Okay, then the first time you visited, what did you, you know, what was that experience like? And then the checkout, blah, blah, blah. And then after using the product, great. So you sort of map that out. And you get two or three customers to do that. And then you just coalesce those three. And that's the 80 for the 20 of your customer journey. Now, now, look, everyone talks about customer journey. I haven't added anything 
right now. Okay, so that, that's something people already talked about. And, 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 and all I'm saying is don't make it too complicated. Just do it easy. The next step is have those three customers look at the consolidated journey map that you created and do three things. Put in a happy face where they had moments of elation or their joy. Put in sad or, or, or crying faces when they had the opposite. And then put in sweaty faces for where they had moments of either tension or, or, or anxiety or frustration. Put those on. And guess what? Even with three customers, you're going to figure out where the highest concentration of faces are. And it just so happens that where there's high concentration of faces – probably means there's a high degree of emotional flow in that one sequence or that one moment in your, in your customer journey. I consider those pivotal moments, moments that matter the most to your customers. They either translate to great brand love, uh, brand hate, brand disenfranchisement, but also potentially opportunities for you to actually reverse the situation and either not only just neutralize all the bad, but think about, hey, let's over-index here because it's such it's a point of such high emotion. You know, it's kind of like love and hate. It's a fine line, right? Those are areas for you to consider for ideation, for development of – and we do a couple things. We, we look at the entire journey and we look at, okay, there's probably – like BMW did theirs. And they identified 20 moments that were actually really critical in the purchasing and, 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 and their customer journeys process. And what we do is we pick – one or two or three maybe, and we would then develop an ideation session on, one, how could we eliminate all the frowny and, and frustration faces, right? What could we do about that? And then how could we either take the happy faces that are there and either make them more happy or brand it in a certain way that is ours, right? Maybe you already have a bunch of happy faces there. Well, let's call it the ABC moment of our retail store, and then we're going to create a lot of fanfare on it. We're going to rename it, and we're going to claim it, okay, because it's already there. It may be hidden. It may be sort of this hidden treasure you didn't even know about, right? And it's just by renaming it and by calling it out and by um, you know, making the customers aware that we care about that, that might be all you need to do. So I have to interrupt here for a second, though, but it's not like you brought somebody in and says – we're now going to have the silver rose. Yeah, we're going to be known for the silver rose policy. Like, what the hell is the silver rose? <laughs> oh, it's a whole new thing. And you're like, don't do that. Right. You have no traction. Right. You're now putting money after a tossing the, you know, you're, you're shooting the arrow into the air and hoping some to, dear God. Instead, you're saying, well, if it already is here and you call the silver rose moment, great. That's, but that's a huge learning for a lot of brands, right? Right. I mean, seriously, work with what you have. Right. And 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 the, the so there's two elements in here. One is figure out where there's moments of high emotion in this journey. Those moments matter more than other moments. You may be wasting all this effort on, quite frankly, I don't know, maybe the checkout area. And your know, checkout area is not high emotion. It's kind of when people aren't thinking a lot, a great deal about it. And you say, oh, well, I'm going to spend, uh, you know, two million dollars on a new register system. And it's going to be two milliseconds faster than the other one. Is that really worth your attention? I don't know. Maybe not, right? What you have right now is fine. Apple Pay, good. Okay, dude, done that. What is maybe much more important is the 30 seconds they're waiting to get their coffee, okay? What's happening in those 30 seconds, right? You know, is there a way to make that kind of fun or interesting or whatever? So 
that, that, that might be, so it's where you apply your effort. And then what you're also talking about is there's stuff they're already doing so well that they're not taking credit. Take a bow for it, right? And, and own it. That's that's so true. And I thought of two experiences. I, I, I don't think we have time for both. But one was a well-known Brooklyn restaurant. And the son comes to the owner and he's like, I'm coming back and I've learned all this stuff and we're going to systematize this whole operation. Like, oh, great. We're going to do more with our marketing. He's like, oh, great, great, great. And one of the things I think we could do is just cut out the bread. You know, we've been bringing the bread to the table every time. And as soon as you hear that, you're like, they didn't really do it. Yeah, they cut out the bread. Oh, no. And I think just listening to you, no one realized that was the thing they went for. Yeah, you had great you know, I don't know, rigatoni and pizza and all, that's not it. That was a highly valued moment. You removed the essential, you really removed the heart of why I love your brand, right? And ultimately closed uh, less than two years later, and it was, this is before the pandemic. But I always think about that, and in that moment, like, did you not realize it? But what you're teaching us today, I appreciate that, soon, is you aren't really looking at that journey and saying, this is a real happy moment. You know, the the waiter comes and like, here's your fresh bread. And it's like, wow. Ding, 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 ding. That's gold, man. I mean, there's this one a place that my wife and I love in San Francisco called, called Jackson Fillmore. And they have the best bruschetta in the freaking world. And we'll keep coming back just for that. If they ever cut that out, we'd probably be like, you're right. 80% of our joy in being there would be gone. And they give that for free. Everybody could, exactly, everybody who's listening to this could learn that. And likewise, you know, I'll never forget, I walked into a, I walked into two Walgreens. One was great. And like, as I walked in and the person actually stepped out and greeted me and I was like, wow, that's unusual. This is amazing. But how many times have we been to Walgreens or somewhere and someone's stuck at the counter? Do you want to join our loyalty program? And you're like, dear God, no, 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 no. Well, how does it work? Oh, dear God, please stop. Is there a self-check? And now you have just bundled this whole experience into friction as I'm walking out the door and that's all I remember, right? And so just knowing that this is a real sad moment, and I really love the idea of, you know, it's not just a sad moment, it's a highly valued sad moment, or it's a really highly valued great moment. And to your point on both the bruschetta and on the bread, they didn't even cost anything. No, they didn't. And and yeah, and and yeah, I think sometimes people... The key thing about pivotal moments is that emotions matter. And what you don't necessarily see on the surface is those emotions. And that's why that pivotal moment exercise is so valuable when we work with our clients. I love it. I love it. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here, my friend. Two last questions for you. One, how has the way you thought about retail changed in the past five or 10 years? It's funny. You know, I think if you would have talked to people 10 or 20 years ago, they would say big box retail was in and mom and pop was out then if you were to talk to people i don't know maybe five years after that they would have said physical retail is out and it's all going digital well i personally think two things i think physical retail is here to stay because the pandemic showed us why it was so important for us to have the chemistry and candor that can only happen when you're face to face with somebody whether it be in a retail environment or on a, in a meeting or at work. So I, I think physical retail is here to stay. It may change. I, I give you that. And the third thing I will say is that more than ever, for me at least, 
What makes a community really special and a place I want to live is the local retail. And I do think at some point when people start sort of doing an analysis of why neighborhoods are successful and why people love love living there and why the property values go up, it'll go a lot they'll think a lot harder than just, oh, the, the school scores, right? The, the whatever, the, the, I forget what they call it, the great school scores, <laughs> whatever they are, right? They'll really think about the idea of the health and wellness of the local mom and pop community as, I think, a, as a, a litmus for what makes a great place to live. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, the title of the show is Tell Me Something Good About Retail. You've already kind of answered that over the last uh, several minutes, but any further thoughts soon? Yeah, just say this, guys. You know, think about the idea that you have the best tool or vehicle to make your customers love you more through good friction, meaning that you're, yeah, make them work a little harder, make them sweat a little harder, make them laugh a little harder, make them be engaged a little longer. That investment they're making in you is going to pay out in dividends, not just for you, but also for them. They will love you for it and they'll love the experience and they will love themselves more because you're doing the best way I could think to end it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Soon. You don't forget his new book, Friction Adding Value by Making People Work for It, is now out. So go take a look. You've been listening to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, The Retail Doctor. As a listener, you can receive free information and guides when you visit retaildoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. Thanks for being with us. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. To virtually bring Bob to all of your crew and associates, check out www.salesrx.com. 